Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. For our very special 100th episode, I have Charles Clark and Grant Cooper of Clark Cooper Concepts coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my co-host this week. She's a beverage specialist and queen of condiments. Linda Salinas, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm living my best life, Eric. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. Gabe Medina is back. He, uh, he's been kind of laying low since he left a key last year, but he's where, got a new project. Where else has Gabe Medina worked? Gabe Medina has worked lots of places, uh, most notably Katarabata, Soma, and Narisawa, a restaurant in Japan that is widely considered to be one of the best in the world. He's kind of a badass. He's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And so anything he does is kind of a big deal. He has started a company called Click Robot Run with Steven Salazar, your good friend, my good friend, the operating partner of the Kirby Group. They're the, the folks behind Wooster's Garden, Holman Draft Hall, Heights Beer Garden, yada, yada. Anyway, so under the Click Robot Run umbrella, they are going to open five virtual restaurants, starting with something called A&J Provisions. Virtual Restaurants, a.k.a. it's delivery, right? Delivery. That's right. Delivery and to go only. Which I think is awesome. Like, Okay. Let me me lay them. All right. Well, let's go. All right. Why do you think it's awesome? Let's start with that. And then we'll kind of go through the the four. They've announced four of the five, so we'll just kind of go through them. Well, first and foremost, I think that to go, uh, to go delivery, catering, um, food that's coming, Food that's just just getting delivered in general is really big biz- business. Obviously, Uber Eats, Grubhub, you know they're monster companies, and they're basically taking they're taking a cut on someone else's you know on someone else's product, right? Right. So that's what inspired this is that in maybe not in Houston so much, but in other cities, they've noted Uber like Uber Eats for example, if they see that there's a specific area of town that like doesn't have a poke shop they might reach out to a sushi restaurant in that area and be like hey you can open a virtual poke restaurant out of your kitchen and you Uh, will just and we'll just deliver and it'll it'll fill our need because it'll give us a close by poke option and you won't have to do any of the marketing like it'll just it'll only exist on uber eats basically yeah and then they'll take 30 to 40 percent of your whatever margin or your cut or whatever yeah so, however that works yeah however that works i mean i think that that works i think the i think the reason why it works i think it's going to work very well is is that we have a lot of uh single family um just convenience wise i think that like that's a really, really great market to start kind of like to well, grow right. into. And it's and the, the kitchen is located basically at Durham in Washington. Mm. So this is like primed like lots of young professionals, easy access to Washington Avenue, the heights. Yeah. 
Montrose, you know, all of those are kind of in the River Oaks, obviously. All of that's in the delivery radius. So, you know, from from a, a labor standpoint, right, you can have one set of cooks cooking. You're paying one rent, but you get multiple restaurants out of it. Yeah, I know. So, all right. So, so basically, it's it's going to be kind of like a food hall in the sense that one kitchen is going to turn out several different styles of food. So the first one is called A&J Provisions. This is like comfort food, you know, meat and three, like Salisbury steak with mac and cheese hmm. or all kinds of vegan vegetarian stuff too. Uh, Steven told me that it's basically like the kind of food that they cook for their families at home. Hmm. All right. <laughs> and then the second one is called Bowling Club. Japanese rice bowls inspired by his time at Narisawa. Okay. And then there's Sandwich Legend. Oh, all right. And then there's 7,000 Islands, which is a Filipino restaurant. Okay. All right. Well, I'm all about that sandwich life. So, all right. Now, we'll see. When does that, when is that, uh, tell, oh, hold on. Let's see. So they're rolling out. So, so the, so A&J Provisions actually opens this week. Okay. I was like, cause I know you like to do the, the first of everything. And the next thing you know, it's like, uh, opens 2041, you know, like, like you like to get the real, you know, I like good. to be, I like to be first of things, but this, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no. So, so the first one opens this week, and then by the end of the year, the other, the other, the other three will roll like oh, cool. one in August, one in All you know right. October, and then one more by the end of the year. All right, I'll see you, Playboy. <laughs> Are you so you're so you're excited about Sandwich Legends? Um, man, I'm excited about I'm excited about what Gabe Medina is doing. Like he doesn't he doesn't play. Like he's thoughtful. Like he does his research and whatever it is that he decides to do. Um, I think some of the downfalls of like, of in his, in his, you know, I guess not even, I wouldn't say even in his career, but like some of the downfalls I've seen is that there's never a support for a front of the house. that's really going to support him. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, like, but I will say like he has, you know, I, I think he's probably, you know, he's Filipino. He's worked in various Japanese restaurants. But don't don't pigeonhole the man. I mean, like he did some consulting for Bosta where he made like a badass pastrami sandwich and like good pastas and like a really great well, uh, fried chicken special. But but that's but, So he has a diverse set of skills. Yeah, no, but that, I'm not saying that was what I'm saying is is that like it always, and that just doesn't always, but the sort of like little hiccups that I've seen, it's oh, always yeah, the, pairing, pairing right. with the wrong person that really, uh, really understands how like excellent he is. That's all I'm saying. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the you biggest problem I mean? at a key, at least in the beginning was the service. Yeah. And he, and they never quite, you know, it took them a while to find a management, a front of house management team that uh, would compliment, that would operate at a level consistent with the food. Well, and I mean, I just don't think that, I, I think a lot of these uh, operators that go into these neighborhoods and so on and so forth is, is that they, you know, it's like, oh, I want to have a restaurant and I want it to feel like this and I want it to look like this and I want the food to look like this and I want, and but you have to consider that what does that neighborhood really want? Who is your guest? Where is your guest coming from? 
Where is your, who's going to be filling those seats two to three times a week? Uh, you know, like, what does that rent really look like? You right. know? And, and so all of, like, he won't have to worry about any of that. Yeah, exactly. So that's great. You know, stoked. All right. All right. Topic number two. Bishop Cidercade, a massive adult arcade and cider dispensary, I guess, for lack of a better, cider bar. Okay. Is opening, uh, well, I called it Edo, and then I got a whole bunch of, I literally got Instagram DMs from people complaining about calling that exact location Edo because it should be either East End or the Second Ward. I make fun of these kind of neighborhood, these like little petty neighborhood arguments, and then but the reason I keep making fun of it is because it keeps happening. So anyway, one or the other. Well, I mean, just get your shit together and east look at of, a map. Somewhere east you know? of downtown. <laughs> um, 18,000 square feet, 300 arcade games, 40 plus draft ciders. Uh, it's a hit in Dallas. They're opening in Houston and in Austin. What do you think? You an arcade? Are you like an old school arcade person? I mean, I do like arcades, but like, come on, Dallas. Get it together. Like, like. So, all right. Well, let me well, put for, it to you like this. Well, well, well for, and let's, let's just talk about it. Like, so. That, that's why we're here. Right. So, cider. We have our own cider companies. The Houston Cider Company. We have, don't we have like two or three different cider people? I, mean, I think the Houston Cider Company is the only one, but I, I could very easily be wrong. Obviously, St. Arnold is making a cider. Cider. Now. I mean, is that really, do you really think that that market is going to. You know, that, that there's that big of a market. Well, to... you're the beverage expert. You tell me. Are you seeing more people drinking cider? Well, yes, but right? will people it... People like it. It's gluten-free, it's right? It's gluten-free. It has, you know, it you metabolizes it a little bit different, you know, different because of the sugars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's a little sweeter. You don't have to deal with some like... Some of them. Some of them not, you know. It's, bitter. Right. There can be dry ciders, but be, you don't have to deal with like... There's not the same snobbery around cider that there is around craft beer. I mean, it's a lot more approachable. It's, I mean, it is, it isn't, it isn't, right? But filling up an entire warehouse of people to come and all only drink cider, let's just see what happens. Okay. Yeah. Let's just hold, hold your freaking horses. You know, hopefully we get a, you know, media invite or something, you know, or some sort of, you know. Oh, no, we'll get some sort of preview, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, man. I just, like, again, I always, I'm always, like, I know I sound like a, you know, naysayer or whatever, but, like, where are you going to get all these people from, you know? Where I mean, are you going to get all these freaking people from? I mean, there's a lot of freaking people hanging out at the bars up and down St. Emmanuel, right? Like. Yeah, and there's. It's kind of if you build it, they will come, I think. I, the, I mean, I don't know. Let's just see. I, I just, I think that you're trying to pigeonholing, like, it would be different if it was, like, cider and, you know, what everyone... Yeah, no, they don't else. have beer. They don't They do not do beer and they don't do cocktails. They uh, just do cider. Okay, let's just see. Let's see if them, they pay with them little, little tokens, you know, to, if they make all their money back from them. Oh, no, it's free. It's it, you, you pay a $10 cover free and then the games are free to play. I don't know. We'll I think see. that's the, that's my favorite part of it. All right. Let's let's see how many times we'll see you there. I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. At least once. <laughs> At least once. Here we go. All right, and then topic number three. Governor Greg Abbott has signed House Bill 
1545, which means that Texas breweries will now be able to sell beer to go starting September 1st. Now, it's always seemed a little bit odd to me that Texas wineries and Texas distilleries could sell their products to go, but Texas breweries could not. So this seems like a good thing, right? This seems like such a no-brainer. Well, I mean, you have to think about who's been fighting against it, you know? Is oh, it, sure. Is it, is it, you know, is it places like, you know, fly, <coughs> Flying Saucer? Is it places like, um, is it places like, or, I mean, is it AB? Who's been fighting this bill? Um, right. The people who, so for a long time, the people who fought this were the distributors, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they want to. They want to maintain their position as the intermediary between producers and retailers. Of course. So they, so, but this, you know, this bill contains some provisions that are sort of a compromise to mollify the distributors. Now, the, the person who founded the Flying Saucer did denounce this bill in an editorial that I think was published in the Austin American Statesman, but don't, don't hold me to that. His name is Shannon Wynn. You can Google. You can Google that, uh, but he did throw a big, a he big. Threw a, he threw a big temper tantrum. tantrum, yeah, because he's like, "Wah," you know. We just, you know, want to cry because I don't know. They're stealing our business. Essentially, they're stealing they're my stealing business. Our they're business. stealing our business, dude. You don't make anything. You make nothing. You basically buy shit from somebody else. Put girls in, you know. Plaid skirts. Plaid skirts, and you, you know. I mean, isn't that isn't that every bar though? I mean, not all of them, but you know. Mm, yeah. But whatever you do, you boo. All right, don't don't get your butt hurt. <laughs> I mean, I I will say the reason I am the most excited about this is that I think it's going to lead to some really cool events, right? Like, you know, the next time St. Arnold releases a Divine Reserve. They can have a big launch party at the brewery, yeah. And you'll be able to get a bottle there to go home with, yeah. Instead of instead of having to wait for specs to take their cut, and the brewer, I mean, St. Arnold's would have to, you know, give to them at, to their wholesale discount, their wholesale pricing. I think it, I think it's good for for the brewer. You know, I think it's good for the brewer and for the tie from guest guest to right it uh, it allows it it in theory at least it will allow breweries to create beers that might have like a, a kind of a niche audience yeah knowing that they can distribute them to go from their you know so that they can do you know crawlers or growlers yeah. or whatever i mean i mean i'll be honest with you i like there's so much beer in in Texas and there's so much beer in, in shelves, but there's nothing worse than going somewhere and and like you're you're at someone's house and you're like, oh man, I got this beer and blah 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 blah, and then you go to crack open this, you know, Boulevard saison or whatever, and you take one sip of it and you're like, oh, like that shit's been in the, it's been dying has been dead for three months on the freaking shelf. It gets sold, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, thanks for making me drink this hot garbage. You know, you 
you spent $17 for that. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I think that that, I think that that's, I think that's great for, for not only the brewery, but, but, but for guests, you know what I mean? Yeah, just, absolutely. I mean, it's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Anyways. All right. All right that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to what's Eric eating. So, Linda, for our restaurants of the week, I want to start with something that you've been deeply involved with as a consultant, which is the new Ninfas in Uptown. Uh, you've created some new cocktails for them. You're kind of giving them a happy hour program. So let me just ask you, how's it going? Because, uh, you know, Mary Clarkson was on the show uh, a couple weeks ago. She and I had a mixed experience. Uh at Ninfa's Uptown, and so... Well, first off, let's let, let's just get it clear and straight. Like, you can't come in the week, not even the week that we're open, and then just, like, nail us to the... to the Nail us to the cross. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that everything just wasn't absolutely divine. You know, I wish she would have said something to someone not on, on the air, but, you know, whatever. To each his own, right? That's everyone has their their soapbox. That's right. Um, and it's always good. It's always good to hear when there's problems. Like there's, I'm, there is nothing wrong with that. I think that if we ever decided as professionals to shut our ears down, or you know, or whatever, to to not good, you know, a little criticism, a little criticism, then we've then we don't we, we don't know what we're doing anymore, right? But um, regardless of all that commentary, um, we have been very busy. Uh, that neighborhood loves Nifas. Um, we've been super packed. Every day has been, like, outstanding as far as, like, seeing so many guests. Everyone's been pretty happy. Um, we are doing a really great happy hour. Um, the patio is starting to kind of fill in its own way. Um, and I mean, the, the kitchen's just, you know, just cranking. I mean, I think in the next couple of weeks, uh, Jason's going to be, uh, rolling out his own specials. Um, just like at, at navigation. I love navigation. Obviously it's an iconic restaurant. Um, and I do love all the normal like Tex-Mex fare, but I think that one of the reasons why, um, it's so, awesome at, at navigation is is that it has its own like really cool set of Alex Padilla you know specials from lamb shanks to birria to- oh no I mean I walked into the ninfas on navigation once and had lamb barbacoa that was like mind-blowingly good no that's and that's really I mean that's what I love about 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 navigation and, and that's so- what separates ninfas from other tex-mex restaurants that yeah. are basically run by kitchen managers yep. Is like they they those other restaurants might be very consistent when it comes to fajitas and enchiladas, yeah. But they won't be as creative, yeah, in their use of ingredients or seasonal items or anything. So yeah, so yeah, bringing some of that to the new Ninfas obviously is all to the good. Yeah, and Jason is eminently well qualified, having worked at Cyclone Anias for a long time and Gravitas before that. Yeah, no, I mean he's a he's a, an excellent chef, and I think that he's going to be you know, getting a, a minute to flex, like what he can actually do. And actually, um, Alex and Jason, um, put together these, uh, these really awesome happy hour bites, 
you know, like we have a lengua empanada with this, um, oh yeah, it's like got this really like lovely texture to it, not only on the inside, but on the outside. And Do I need uh, to tell people that lengua is beef tongue or we think people listening to the show know that? I think that we're in Houston and a lot of people know what lengua okay, is. Okay, just make sure. Yeah, I think we're good. Um but there's like taquitos and then a couple of, we have a crispy fish skin taco and a couple of other things. Like those are just, those are all like just small bites to kind of like get you, you know, get you a little taste of what's coming. Um, but those are happy hour bites. Happy hour is doing really well. Um, I just, I mean, the concept is just going to still continue to develop. You know, and, and, and so let me just, just to be clear, you didn't fuck with the name for Rita, did you? No, dude. No, no, I, no, I did not. Okay. I know better. But you've added to the agave selection and you brought in some mezcal yeah, and some mezcal and, you know, a couple of other <laughs> tricks that I like to do, you know, but yeah. What was that watermelon and cachaça cocktail? I did a cachaça lime, um, watermelon, agua fresca cocktail, a little bit of salt up top. Um, I'm a salt monster. That was um, very tasty. Yep. And then, um, I also did a Negroni. Um, and Negroni week is actually this week. Yes. And so, um, it, it's a week that starts and basically $1 to $1 from each cocktail goes to your, uh, favorite charity. And so it's just, um, a different way to kind of like, you know, to give back to the community, any community that you want to, um, the restaurant chooses the charity. Yes, absolutely. So, but, um, I did a, I did an agroni and then, um, I'm still going to develop a couple of other things, you know, um, it would be silly, um, as a beverage consultant, um, or anyone to just walk into a, a new, like a, an already outstanding, like, uh, yeah, people have strong opinions about the need for it. Yes, absolutely. And so it'd be silly for me to just walk in and be like, uh, I think that I just think it's better for us to flip everything. So, um, just like you can't mess with queso. Can't right. mess with the queso. All right. So just to sum up, uh, it's going well. You're making progress. Yes. I saw Dave Mays, the operations director yes. for Legacy last week at an event. And he basically told me the same thing, which is that it's been it's been a little bit of a struggle to kind of get their hands around this monster because the, the restaurant's big and getting the crew up to speed has been challenging, but that they're they're getting there. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like with anything else. I mean, I mean, any restaurant opens up and it's like trying to figure out all the cogs and pieces or, or where they work, you know? And so that's where, that's kind of where we've been, but, um, the neighborhood's really good. So yeah, I'm ready to go back. I'm ready for another round of fajitas. All right. Why don't you try the other stuff? You know, cause what I like the fajitas. Ay Dios. Fine. I've been eating the fajitas since I was like four or five. It's all too right. late to change. I'm committed. All right, fine. <laughs> All right. And then the other restaurant I want to talk about this week is Lottie Dottie, which is not really a restaurant. It's a it's a patio bar. It's the new project from uh, Adam Doris and Michael Riojas. We know Adam from Pax Americana and Presidio. We know Michael from Beavers and Good Company and Ladybirds. Lady um, and I, I have to say, like, I... Like I respect the the kind of wave of patio bars that have like gimmicks, right? Like wallpaper in the bathrooms where you can take a selfie because it's cool, or like a giant Ferris wheel in the backyard. Like yeah. I, 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 I 
respect that. I, I get what people like about that. But what I liked about Lottie Dottie is that it, it didn't have any of that. It's like, it's just a bar. It's just a bar with a lot of seating and a whole bunch of frozen drinks. A lot of frozen drinks. Eight frozen drinks. Eight frozen drinks. Uh, like another eight draft cocktails and then some house cocktails. Their wine selection is very good. Yeah, and very affordable. Very affordable, yeah. No, it's a it's a great neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood bar. Um, beer selection is good. Um, the spirits aren't too crazy. I mean, one of the things that kind of drives me a little bonkers is when I walk in and I'm like, oh, I know everything that's in the back bar. That's not a good thing. <laughs> like, because not everyone knows all of those spirits, you know? Um, yeah, you don't necessarily want them to be super obscure. No, 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 no. It's really, it's very well edited, you know, selection. Um, I am worried about their parking, you know? Yeah, they don't really have any, at least that I'm aware of. They've had, a couple times I've been there, they've had valet. Yeah. Which is convenient. Um, but I don't know. I mean, they must have leased some parking somewhere nearby, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know where it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, but in all honesty, like at this point, I would I would much rather have people just know to just Uber, just Uber, just Lyft. Right. You know, like right. don't don't drive to the bar. Don't drive to the bar. Just because then you have to drive home from the bar. Yes, exactly. Those then you get pulled over and then it's and then, expensive. Ugh, and it's just a nightmare. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we are Houstonians and Houstonians love driving places, no matter how many times you tell them, um, to not drive. But, um, as far as, uh, the aesthetics of the bar, I mean, it looks a lot different than, um, yeah, it used to be Brooklyn Athletic Club and it doesn't look anything like that. anything like that. But, um, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a good welcoming yeah, I thought the service was good, right? I mean, you know, we, like when we went and sat down, you know, someone came over and brought us water. Yes, water you service. Know, you know, <laughs> all of the, all those little things. And then the food menu, you know, I've had, I had the grilled cheese, which I really liked. Um, the charcuterie looks compelling. There's an $8 cheeseburger that seems pretty reasonable. You know, the chicken wings, I think from the Presidio days are on this menu. All right. So, you know, again, like I don't, I don't have to go to, I don't have to have food at the bar, but it's nice when there's a little bit of food because then you can kind of, yeah, it makes it more approachable like for happy hour. So question, um, questions that I didn't, that I didn't ask, but, um, are they doing happy hour? I don't know. They okay. should. All right. And then, uh, other question, how late's that kitchen open? So suppose for, for now, right. As I understand it, the kitchen is open the entire time they are open, which is 3 PM to 2 AM. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know. A lot of times places open without those kind of good intentions and yeah. then it doesn't last. So fingers crossed. All right. Well, but if just... I, but if I could even get that food until midnight, I'd feel pretty good about it. All right. Sounds huh? good. All right. Linda, thank you very much. See you soon. I'll be right back with Grant Cooper and Charles Clark. You're listening to what's Eric eating. So as I, as I said, this is the 100th episode of What's Eric Eating? So my guests this week are two, the major, the major players, two of the heavy hitters in the Houston restaurant world. 
Charles Clark and Grant Cooper of Clark Cooper Concepts. They are the owners of Ibiza, Brasserie 19, Copa, Punk's Simple Southern Food, and the Dunlavey. I'm going to introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Grant, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having us on your uh, 100th episode. Charles, uh, thanks for being here. Good to see you. It's a pleasure. Uh, first time to do this. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So I like to start these uh, interviews kind of at the beginning. Can you tell me, how did you guys meet and start working together? <laughs> you want to do that or you want me to start? <laughs> uh, how do we meet? Well, I think well, we were sleeping with the same girl, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we lived in Dallas and uh, I, I was uh, restoring an old 64 T-Bird and I was riding a bike everywhere and and I went to this ice house, have a few beers, and Grant was there. And, you know, kind of guy that wears jerseys and shorts and tennis shoes 24-7. It's a little ice house right in the middle of Highland Park, which is like River Oaks. And, uh, and uh, I had a tan. I just got back from backpacking through Europe. And he, he had just got back uh, a few months earlier. And we said, where did you backpack? I said, Greece. I said, so did I. He said, I said, what island? He goes, Carfu. I goes, so did I. Turns out we were in a Carfu at the same hotel together. We missed each other just by a few months. And we had that in common. So he grew up in Belgium, I found out later. And we both liked food. And, you know, at a young age, most guys are into, you know, fried foods and stuff. This guy was into, you know, braised rabbit and snails and foie gras and all that. And he was one of the only guys I could talk to. So we became really good friends. And this, and he stayed in the bar business for a while. And I stayed as a waiter for a while. Later on in our life, that's when we started the Clark Cooper Concepts. Yeah, I mean, you, you guys had a restaurant downtown, right? But that... We did. But that wasn't part of Clark Cooper. That was kind of pre-Clark Cooper. That was our first restaurant uh, together. That's when you do everything on so. a handshake and you trust everybody, and then you, a year later you find out you're really not the owner, and uh, you you have a meeting. You say, you know, screw this, I'm out of here, and we do, developed our own company, and that's where uh, we started the Biza a year later, a year to the day, pretty much. Yeah, you opened a Biza what? In, yeah, 2001. So you're approaching rapidly approaching 20 years. I know 20 it was years. Quick. Yeah, next year. So, I mean, obviously Ibiza is still popular, still successful. Like at a time when, you know, so many restaurants maybe have a four or five year run. What is it about Ibiza that's allowed it to be, to have such longevity? I think uh, consistency is the key. You know? I, yeah, I'm there I every think. day. Uh, I know every customer. I'm very consistent with it. Um, we, we're kind of um, the end of an era, I think, when it comes to service. Uh, when I mean service, I mean years ago, Granted spilled a glass of wine on a customer, and or he didn't spill, like the customer spilled it, and Grant looked at the label, found out where it came from, ran as fast as he could in his car, bought a $400 jacket and gave it to the guy. The guy walked out with a brand new jacket with no wine spills and went to the theater. Just service like that. We started doing, our, we had t-shirts printed, they said the rules have changed. Everybody said, what does that mean? I go, well, the rules have changed, no more buying a $10 bottle of wine and charging a $100 bottle of wine for it. And uh, we changed everything about it. Uh, customer service, uh, you know, to our standards, we, we, we would go out of our way to make people happy. And I think it stuck with Ibiza, and that's why, you know, it's still around today. Yeah. I think it's, it kind of started with the attitude towards our whole wine philosophy over there. It was kind of our approach about being close to a fine dining restaurant, but really without the pretentiousness, kind of kind of scale it back and, and – take the attitude more of, a, of the farmers and stuff in the, in the wine country and 
not make it seem so unapproachable. And I think we kind of did that through our attitude a little bit and our uh, kind of just playing the music in there and had a lot of energy when you walked in and those type of things. I think, you know, doing that almost 20 years ago was something new uh, to the Houston restaurant scene. Yeah, I mean, and the the wine pricing, which is basically just a little bit over retail, has kind of revolutionized dining in Houston because, you know, it, it just... You know, why why would I why would I order a bottle of wine for two hundred dollars at at some restaurant when I know that I can go to one of your places and get it for eighty bucks? You know? Yeah, you can't afford not to drink at one of our restaurants. That's right. Oh yeah, no, you get <laughs> and and two bottles, right? Two bottles, yeah. exactly. It's cheap yeah. enough. It's cheap enough to get that two bottles bottle. on an Uber. Yeah, we always <laughs> said well, we read have two, uh, people drink two bottles at forty four dollars a you know, bottle as opposed to one at you know sixty five dollars or something like that. So it's kind of a win win situation for everyone. Was that was there a specific like program somewhere else that inspired that or, or was it just you guys kind of being practical about actually I think it started back when we first met back in, in Dallas we were talking about you know back then we had no money and uh, we you, you wanted to go somewhere to have a good meal and, and good wine we always find the places where you could bring your own wine type of cafe thing. Madrid remember? cafe Madrid uh, was right down the street from the bar where I worked so I think it was that attitude about why do people have to mark up the wine so high when we all know what the cost of the wine is. Um, and so I think, you know, initially we were going to have, it, you know, BYOB, kind of bring your own wine. But then we said, well, we want an inventory. We want to bring in the wine that we think is going to be best with the menu. So we said, well, if we are going to do this, let's, let's do a, a slight markup over retail. Um, and I think, you know, at that time, and even to this day, it's a scary thing for a restaurant person to, to kind of, uh, put into place because, you know, you're thinking the margins just aren't going to work. So you're not really, uh, micromanaging just that one segment. You're looking at the bigger picture as far as how you run the business. So from, uh, so from Ibiza, then you opened Catalan with, uh, Chris Shepard. And there was a, I mean, again, like there was a moment in time where I think that was, Kind of considered the best restaurant in Houston. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Chris uh, and I graduated from culinary school together, and um, he was at Brennan's, and uh, and I had a, I'd have had a lot of success at Ibiza, being out in the open, talking to customers, and I knew Chris had that kind of same attitude, and I know he could cook. I knew he was passionate about whatever he did. So um, he was selling wine. I remember he had a jacket said the wine guy. He was selling wine at Brennan's. I said, dude. Get out of here. You come, come, come do a deal with us. And I pulled um, Grant and I had an idea. Pulled Antonio Gianola from uh, DeMarco at the same time. So I think one of the uh, critics called us the, the dream team. And, and we then we had uh, Matt also yeah, on board Matt. as uh, one of the guys. He was over at Marks at the time. Yeah, and Becky Masson worked there too, right? She did some pastry stuff. Yeah, she did. Becky worked at, for us. Uh, yeah, at Ibiza as well, off yeah. and on a couple of times. Yeah. So I mean, you guys have had like an incredible roster of chefs that have. Worked for you over the years, not just Chris, but obviously uh, Brandy Key and uh, I mean EJ Miller, who's now at International Smoke, and now you've got Travis, who uh, is filled in tides over there. Right. Yeah, he was uh, there for a while, and then uh, quite a bit. Yeah, there's a lot of people, a lot of people in the industry overall, just from chefs all the way down to well, yeah, you've got servers a- and managers. Uh, Right, you could basically walk into any restaurant in Houston and be like, hey, didn't I fire you like five years ago? Well, I've had people come in and uh, looking for a job, and, and I have to question myself. Did, I think I fired this guy for something, you know, four or five years ago. I can't remember. But, but it works both ways because I'll go into a brand new restaurant 
and I might not know the owner, but I'll know one busboy or one waiter. So it's like, hey, that's Charles. He didn't have, you know, get him a good table, whatever. You know, right. I might get an extra side of French fries or something. Who knows? But uh, so what's, I mean, when you're kind of evaluating people or when you're bringing people on, like what are the, what are the qualities you're looking for? Because you seem to have a really good track record identifying talent. Um, well, one thing in the front of the house we look at, I, you know, when I look at the people, I'll just look at the people we ask. And one of the things I just ask them right off the bat is if they cooked anything last night, where did they eat? You know, not so much of the standard questions. I ask them to tell me a good joke. I want to know if they are the people, you know, people person or if they're just looking for a job to satisfy their paycheck to kind of pay the rent. So we're looking for people that are more passion driven about food in general. Do they actually care about food? Um, and I think the more of those type of people we get on board, the better, the, you know, the overall team is as far as just the far, as far as front of house and back of the house. So we don't want people cooking food if it's not really their passion. So the key is kind of getting to know the person through an interview as opposed to just the standard questions of where they worked and what they did. I would like to kind of get a, their personality. Remember in 2001, one of the first questions Grant would ask a waiter walking, Grant goes, what's foie gras? And if they didn't know, that, that was the end of the interview. So if they knew what foie gras was, the interview would continue. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Charles, what about you? I mean, you've kind of had this role of mentoring chefs and, and training chefs. I mean, what are the, like, what are the qualities you're kind of looking for? Um, kind of the same. I, I try to tell people, look, the money will come if you follow your passion. I know that sounds corny. A lot of people say that. But I just want to get people excited about the food. If they come in and the guy shows up early or wants to come in on his day off and cook, that's a big plus for me. Uh, a team player, somebody like Grant, I always use a sports analogy. We put we want to win every game, so we put the best team on the floor. And that's in the kitchen in the front of the house. And uh, it's hard to come by those guys because especially today is a employee's market. And, you know, everybody, you know, here's 25 cents extra and they leave you rather than staying, doing a good job and then – you know, look at, like, say, Sean Marine owns his own restaurant now. He was with us 15 years, and the guy busted his butt, and he owns his own restaurant. And uh, a lot of people have, have left Clark Cooper Concepts and went on to be very successful and looked back and said, hey, Grant or Charles, you were hard on me, but, man, uh, it, it worked out my life, you know? So, yeah, let me, uh, let me just shift gears slightly. I mean, I, as I said, you guys have been in the business here in Houston for about 20 years. I mean, how would you say kind of the scene has changed overall in terms of maybe like what diners are looking for or, or maybe there's things you thought wouldn't have been viable in 2001, but maybe you think they're viable now? Um, well, I think there's a lot more options right now. You know, I think every little neighborhood has a couple of restaurants they can go to. And I think for the most people, part, people kind of eat within their one mile radius of their house or once they get home or, you know, so they have their kind of their habitual patterns. So I think people definitely have options, but as far as the, um, the, the scene, I think, I think everyone's a food critic now, it seems like, I mean, it used to be people to come in and kind of sit down dine and appreciate what you're doing. I feel like there's a lot of people that want to tell you how to do things almost to a certain degree. And they kind of tell our servers or they tell our staff and then the staff gets, tells us about different things so in a way i guess that keeps us on edge and makes us maybe uh, a little stronger a little better but uh all the social yeah. media man just the apps i mean people they'll order a bottle of wine from france or something no one's ever heard of and they'll put an app on it and say oh it's they only made certain sort of cases and 
you know, it's actually $12 a bottle and you're charging 26 a bottle, you know, just the social media aspect is, is changed. Yeah. And you've been, you've been kind of busy on Cleverly's Facebook group, kind of, uh, mixing it up a little bit. (laughs) Oh, uh, I get her. What you're talking about? Uh, I, I, I just don't understand when people go on Facebook and they ask for a recommendation who else knows a restaurant more than the owner? Who knows can give them answers? Who can be there, welcome them, and make sure they were perfect? But as an owner, you can't say a word. It has to come from other customers. Is that what you're talking about? Something like well, that? no. I just like someone will be like, "Where's the best gazpacho in town?" And you'll be like, "Oh, that's easy." Yeah, I don't answer. Yeah, I don't get. I go, that's easy because I'm one of the few. I actually lived in Marbella. I lived in Spain for a couple of years. I traveled all, all over Spain, so I make gazpacho in my sleep i know what it's the way they eat it over there they drink it like out of a milk carton and then you see all these chefs they coming up with this chunky watermelon gazpacho and i'm like man where did you learn to make gazpacho they, they would laugh at you in spain but i like to do traditional gazpacho that's anything i cook like say paella i like to make it traditional to honor where it comes from sure one of the other things i kind of wanted to talk to you guys about is uh you guys have been business partners for a really long time any number of restaurant partnerships have come and gone uh, in the amount of time you guys have been doing this. Like, so, so what is the secret to sustaining a successful business relationship? Because it just seems like there's all these restaurant groups that kind of spring up out of nowhere and then they're gone in a, they're gone in a year or two. I think we both have the same vision of, as far as what kind of restaurants we want to do. Um, so I think that, you know, that's kind of the base right there. I think we've been friends for, 25 years, yeah. 30 years or so. So, you know, I think it's kind of just starts. We have a lot of history between each other. You know, um, we could probably tell each other's story for the last 30 years and, you know, good ones, bad ones, different ones. So, you know, kind of growing up together, I think, uh, you know, makes a big difference. Yeah, we never really uh, been in many arguments. I mean, we, if we argue, it's about getting the customer like, uh, I think they should have this one or, or or uh, this customer, whatever. I mean, we play good cop, good cop, bad cop. I've, I've had to kick people out of the restaurant a lot. And then Grant has done it a couple of times. But uh, we really don't fight. It's strange. We just we respect, respect each other's opinions. And, um, you know, I don't know. We've just been very fortunate. But I've seen so many partnerships. I mean, you name it. I, I can't think of one partnership that is still intact over 20 years in this city. You know, it's hard. Yeah. Um, so let me turn to Brasserie 19. Uh, certainly, I, I would say maybe your best known concept, uh, maybe your best, your most successful concept. Um, how's it going over there? Because you've got all that construction now with the high rise going up next door. Um, actually, the business is good. You know, I think when they uh, first started with the construction, I think they plastered all over the uh, newspapers. Every time they said they were putting up a high rise, they were tearing down this or that uh, on West Gray, they had a picture of Brasserie 19. So I think everyone saw all the picture, saw the title, but didn't read the article and re- thought that the Brasserie was going to be torn down. So I think for about six months or so there, we had people you know, asking us, where are we going? What's going to happen? And this and that. And we were like, we're not going anywhere. I walked in there one time at Brasserie and these uh, group of ladies said, well, I heard you guys are, you know, you're moving over here. And I said, no. And she goes, no, I'm telling you, you are. I'm, I'm telling you we're not, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I had a, like an argument with these ladies about it, and they were emphatic. And I said, I think I would know. And uh, so I think it was that part of it. But now that 
you know, I don't even know if people realize there's a high rise being built. You know, I think you drive up and down these streets in Houston and you're like, wait a minute, where did that high rise come from all of a sudden? So yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's the, minimal now to, at, at, at most. So, yeah, I mean, I think the developer is kind of counting on Brasserie to be an amenity for the, for their tenants. Right. I mean, that's oh, for part sure. of the appeal. Yeah. I think that, you know, and uh, I'm not going to speak for wine garden, but I know they wanted us to, to stay there for, you know, there was no, uh, you know, no d- doubt about it, that it certainly helps having Brasserie 19 there. So what is it about that restaurant that's just made it so successful? I mean, it just seems like it's like a constant party in there. I think we uh, just hit yeah. lightning in a bottle. I mean, there was the quickest lease we ever signed. Tony Mendoza left that restaurant after 20 years, and they said, hey, would you guys like to do a concept here? And Grant, I just, man, we're going we're, we're gonna to do something quick. I don't even think we knew what we wanted to do. I think we signed the lease before we knew. And then we said a brasserie. No, no, we said brasserie right away. Okay. Yeah. But we didn't have it all lined up. But when we signed the lease, man, we we just hit hit the ground running. We knew it was a a dynamite location. River Oaks is basically one red a lot away. And, um, you know. Well, we knew at the time there was. So when we think about concepts, for example, when we did uh, Copa originally, there weren't a lot of chef-driven Italian restaurants. And there was no brasserie in the city of Houston, for the most part, at the time. And coming from Europe, I was like, this is this is unacceptable really. And it, you know, it's almost embarrassing at the time that, you know, you would to think that there wasn't something like that. And when this popped up and they said, Hey, you want to be in this And we we're like, wait a minute, you mean right here by river Oaks, great neighborhood for sure. We could, this is perfect for a brasserie. And that's why we named it 19 because we wanted to be part of the neighborhood and a brasserie. That's what, exactly what it should be. It should be the melting pot of the surrounding neighborhood that's where people come and gossip. That's where people kind of go and get their news back in the day. And I think, you know, we've been able to kind of bring that brasserie spirit to that exact location. And I think that location itself, being in River Oaks, doesn't hurt for the, uh, you know, for the people coming in. And then there's other people. But um, I wouldn't say it's just a party scene. I think brasserie or any restaurant should be in Houston. So the way we kind of design them is that, you know, you want energy. You want, because there's not, nothing else to do in Houston for the most part. To go out to dine is one of the most, uh, the, one of the biggest things as far as an experience uh, on the day-to-day basis during the week. So I think providing an, an environment where people go in and feel like they've gone to a great movie for two and a half hours, has to have great food service, good wine prices. I think that's what we try to do. So if people want to have a good time, that's what we want. We want them to leave and feel better than when they walked in. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I mean, I I think that all makes sense. I just, there is just something. It's just it's so lively. Like even, you know, Shannon and I had uh, lunch there. Your your publicist Shannon and I had lunch there uh, a couple of months ago, and and you know, it's like Friday afternoon at you know one thirty, and like as soon as you walk in, there's like, like the the big eight top, and it's like eight dudes just with like three bottles of champagne on the table, you know, big plate of oysters. It's like just, they're just, they're there to have a good time. Well, that started at Ibiza too. I mean, you walk into Ibiza, you know, a lot of people say it's like a good old boys club at lunchtime. And I think that's because you can get the prices of wine, but I also think it's just the attitude that we try to instill with our management and our staff is to provide that good service. But again, not being too pretentious, have some good music playing, have good food, and don't think too highly of yourself every day and that every day is a brand new day. And we're like, we, you know, we say we kind of look at it as a, a sporting event. Every day is a new game. But we try to kind of clean the slate and start all over the next day and provide like for the best show that we can. 
And then just tell me a little bit about how it's going in Rice Village with Copa Osteria and Punks. Copa is, uh, is booming. I mean, uh, it's actually our, our busiest restaurant as far as just the amount of customers coming through the doors. I think, again, when we looked at that location for an Italian restaurant, we liked the idea. In fact, uh, the landlord was trying to push us to a different spot within that building, and we said, no, I want to take the corner spot because it felt more like part of the neighborhood, and it felt more like an outdoor patio. You want to be kind of feel like you are on the side of the streets somewhere in Italy, even though we were in, in, the, you know, in Rice Village. So, uh, and I think all that has come true, and I think we, every year Copa has increased itself. And right now we're up 10% from last year, and, and last year was our best year. So we're continually to grow and grow, and I think our, our food program over there has just blossomed. Uh, we're doing uh, unbelievable different types of pastas, all made in-house in our dough room. So I think uh, we're always pushing the envelope there. I think, uh, you know, I think it's our most thriving restaurant right now between the, uh, the group of restaurants we have. It's the one that's always seemed to me like you could you could open more of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Italian, yeah, for sure. You can, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go. You can uh, step it up. You can step it down. You can go with exactly what we have. So there's a lot of variations with that concept that could uh, be done for sure. Uh, and then, how's Punks doing? Punks is good. It's you know, it's our uh, kind of our uh, what do you want to call it? It's Punks. You know, it's, it's your most chicken. family friendly concept. It's my, for sure. it, yeah, it's my nickname, Punk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's definitely family uh family friendly which is good but it's also kind of uh it honestly makes it really tough on the staff because kids are running and you know they enjoy the backyard type of atmosphere Boy but it's yard. it's hard when you're trying to take an order and half the table's not at the table and things like that so it, it kind of presents its own uh little dilemma it's uh you know it's good for the for the for the guests because they have a reprieve and and uh they can kind of hang out but, you know, again, we've made it, made it work for ourselves. Uh, and then the Dunleavy, I mean, maybe from a design standpoint, your, your prettiest build-out. I mean, 40, 40 chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, right, as I recall? 43, yeah. 40, yeah. Quite a bit of chandeliers. Plus the two in the restroom. <laughs> Plus we didn't know they need wiring a few days before opening. We uh, tried to turn them on, and it was all European wiring, so yeah. we had to rewire everyone. Oh, good. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was a little painful. Um, you just announced you're going to start doing dinner there next year. Why did you decide to make that change away from events and towards regular dinner service? Um, I think we kind of made a statement about it, but uh, we re- uh, essentially listening over the last three years uh, to the amount of people that wanted to kind of ex- experience the Dunleavy, either at lunch or dinner especially, they weren't able to at dinner. So unless you were there at a private event, and all the people that would go there for private events would tell people, but again, if you didn't have a, a ticket, so to speak, to go to a private event, then you aren't, uh, you know, in the space. And that the space is beautiful. The location is very unique. Uh, it's one of a kind location. I don't think there'll be another location in Houston, ever, for the most part. Uh, there's only one Buffalo Bayou, and there's only one space for a restaurant like that. So, I think listening over the last three years to the guest demand to be able to uh, experience it more um, allowed us to make the decision a little easier. We, uh, you know, do breakfast, lunch, and then we transition every, every, you know, three or four times a week. Every, we have to transition from breakfast, lunch to a private event. We have to take all the furniture out, bring new furniture in. We're prepping during breakfast and lunch for a private event. So there's a lot of logistics that makes it extremely, I don't want to say difficult. It, well, it is difficult, but the staff has over the years been amazing as far as being able to handle that uh, kind of level of 
stress. But I think we can take a lot of that stress. We can uh, kind of streamline our um, our process in the in the kitchen and be able to uh, provide more of a uh, continuous restaurant feel by doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So and, okay. and Allen Parkway is developing along there. There's a lot of new stuff coming in that area. So we're trying to be ahead of the game as well. What do you What do you think the food is going to be like at dinner? Because I, I mean, one of the things about the Dunleavy is it doesn't have as clearly a defined cuisine as a brasserie or an osteria or yeah well uh, i think the best way you know we'll, charles and i and our team over there with jane and everybody will be developing the menu over the next five to six months as we transition into the dinner but essentially it's more of a california spirit as far as the style of cuisine um i think that's kind of the way we view it a lot of local ingredients utilizing the more farm to table type of atmosphere or experience dining experience but Local fresh ingredients. We'll have some surprises for you as far as uh, a little bit of the decor. Not that we're changing it dramatically. The chandeliers will always be there. Uh, but the style of, uh, you know, the plateware, different things. Yeah. We, we want to have a little more fun with this. We, I think we can because of the, the setting itself. It kind of lends to more theatrics. And then, you know, you've told me over the years several times that you have Four to five concepts at seventy five percent, and you can uh, <laughs> you can go to a hundred, you know, in a couple of months. Sometimes, if you had to, yeah. um, do you have any kind of irons in the fire? I mean, do you do you think you'll open a new restaurant sometime soon? Yes, definitely. Uh, like you said, at least definitely, or like uh, I would say ninety nine point nine percent. The ink's drying. Put it like that. All right. Yeah, we should yeah. open. Uh, well, 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 Dunlave, I guess you can call that a, a new restaurant in a sense. So that's yeah. one. And then we have two other things we're working on that should open next year. Oh. Yeah. Inside the loop or outside the loop? You're talking about the 610 loop here, right? Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about the 610 loop. I say, I say, I say. <laughs> I would say that is inside, inside the loop, yeah, inside. sir. Oh. In your hunting grounds. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. You don't want to, so. But you want to play hot cold? Yeah, we, <laughs> I, I mean, I'll, you know. No, we, no, we would like to say it's just that the leases and stuff, they, they, you know, yeah. they forbid you to say anything. We have the, we're at 75% and beyond now on two of them. But okay. We, uh, until we're ready to kind of talk about it, we, you know. Well, you know, I have to ask. Yeah, of course. It's all. all right. Well, gentlemen, that brings me to the end of my questions, unless you have some other topic that you want to dive into. That was painless. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I always, I always, I'm out while I'm ahead. <laughs> I always yeah. end these interviews with something I call the lightning round. Five easy, five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Grant, I'm going to start with you. What is your favorite cookbook? Uh, right now, I would say the uh, the Bestia uh, cookbook out of LA. Charles, how about you? J- uh, Jelena. He just turned me on to it. I like it. Grant, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, Rush. Nice. In Belgium, Brussels. Charles, how about you? Kiss. Grant, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. With a drive-thru? Uh, P. Terry's, burgers. Austin Ch- Classic, all right. Chick-fil-A. All right. Kiss calls my kids. Charles, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, Dan Pastrini. Grant, how about you? Mm. Mickey Mantle. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally... Uh, Grant, when you when you go to a pizza place for the first time, what is your go-to pizza order? The go-to is the margarita. Charles? Uh, just a plain cheese pizza with anchovies. Simple. 
I like salt. <laughs> all right, give us the website for Clark Cooper and social media and all that stuff. ClarkCooperConcepts.com. And uh, what was the other? Let me, let me get Shannon over here. <laughs> Shannon, get over here. Get over here, Shannon. That's what we pay you for. ClarkCooperConcepts.com and at ClarkCooperConcepts on Instagram. And that'll take you to all of the other restaurants and everything else. Correct. All right. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Thank Appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Thanks right. for having us. You can follow me on Twitter at eSandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on CultureMap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.